0: The Lord be with you. Thank you. Um, good morning. What a, um, what a great morning and what a great way to get started. And um, wow, we are we're super glad you guys are here. And so as we jump into um, Ruth, still mirroring the story of, of Ruth and Boaz with the uh, kind of with some of the lessons and miracles and, and um, basic concepts behind the incarnation, the coming of Jesus Christ. And so um, we're going to start actually in the last section of chapter 2 in 223 to remind ourselves where we were at the last part of the story. So she, she being Ruth, um, kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So here, though things are are going okay, they've not really changed. Things are still pretty much the same as they were. Um, This is... There's, there's, um, there has been provision, but not a long-term change. You've still got, she's still living with her mother-in-law. She's still gleaning. She's been gleaning through the end of the barley and wheat harvest. So this is from spring through most of summer. And so this can be as long as, you know, three or four months. And so during this time that's been going on again, hope, yes, a sense of peace, yes, um, but, but not a lot of progress. That's what we're looking at. She's still no new family, no new husband, and no new hope for a child. And we talked about, especially for um, in the Jewish culture, for a woman at this time, the hope of a child was really the, the main source of hope, the main desire, the main um, heart that they had for that. So no real hope for a child. Um, that's where we are in Ruth chapter 3. Uh, but Naomi has an idea. She's ready to move things along a little bit. Naomi is, um, as you often see in Jewish um, narration, is kind of the all-knowing older Jewish woman, the matchmaker. And so she has a, an idea that we find in chapter uh, 3, 1 and 2. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor." So we go back to this concept of rest. This has been talked about before. And in fact, rest was something that, that Naomi felt like she couldn't offer Ruth in the past, earlier in this narration. So God's provision for rest, it, it's uh, a very appropriate and timely. that. Um, so you guys remember I took um, a sabbatical um, just a few months ago for about six weeks and it was a great time of rest, and right before I went with our youth group with, um, uh, to a mission trip in the Dominican Republic with Students International, and, um, and I actually, when I came back and, and <laughs> was able to share a little bit, that God really used that trip to prepare my heart to rest. Um and to say he used the trip is, there's a truth in that, but it really wasn't the trip that was the provision. So I got down there and remember me telling you about um, Michael Coffey and I were down there and we were on our own little team and, and, and with a guy named Dan and we were supposed to make water filters and so, um, you know, kind of you go into it knowing, hey, my, we're just going to be here as, as kind of grunt labor to crank out um, water filters. And so for the first two or three days, Michael and I couldn't get it through our heads that that wasn't all that God had in store for us. And so we would go charging right, you know, we'd get out of the truck and go charging right to the water filters, and um, at the first few days, especially a guy named Dan Graczynski, who was with student international, would stop, he'd have stop us, he'd be like, stop, we, we'd, get to, we'd get to the water filters and realize Dan wasn't there, and we'd turn around, and Dan would be back talking to someone in the village, or especially the lady whose house where we were, and she's preparing coffee, and he's like, come back, sit down, you know, to Stop what you're doing, and, and to, to force you can imagine that I'm not the type of guy for whom making me be still is an easy um, thing to do. It borders on, on a miracle. And so um, so with that being said, it's, it's probably good for you to know that you have a, a miracle worker in your midst. Dan is actually in town. Dan back there wave. Dan brought his family, and they're in town right now. Yes, I was a huge Dan, Dan and his family were a huge blessing to me when I was down there and to Michael too, but <coughs> I'm focused on me here. so the um, it, it really was a big, big deal. He, he really was a great reminder every single day to stop. Stop with all this frantic activity. There's a time for frantic activity, absolutely. There's a time to crank out water filters, I'm sure. But that wasn't the time, and that wasn't the lesson that God had for me. It was to rest. So here's what's cool. So Dan, Dan and his family have come to the States, and they're traveling to different things. And so this morning when I got to see Dan for the first time, and was like, how was last night? He stayed at the Robbie's house. And he said, oh my gosh, like the best night of sleep I've had in a long time. So notice the provision of rest continues through the Christian world. That, that Dan was part of God's provision for me for rest. The Robbie's was part of God's provision to Dan and his family for rest. This is, this is a large part of how God teaches us to rest is with one another. To teach us to, to listen and learn from one another. And that's the provision for rest. And not by the way, not just a good night's sleep and not just learn to sit still and have a cup of coffee but the provision for security for the rest of her life, the rest in knowing I'm not going to starve to death tomorrow. That's the type of rest that Naomi is talking about here. And in this culture, the only real way a woman could experience that was with being taken into a family, in particular a husband in this situation. So this is now Naomi's strategy. She's realized there's a romance that's growing here, maybe Boaz sees it coming. At the end, we're going to point out that maybe Boaz does see some of it coming. Maybe Ruth doesn't see it coming. It's hard to really tell. Maybe both of them are pretty clueless, but this is what, this is important. Now, that's the rest concept. Now, the relative, that may seem a little weird to us. Um, there's lots of East Texas or Arkansas jokes I could insert here about them being relatives. I'm going to, I'm going to avoid that and, and move straight to, this is, they're in the same tribe. This means <laughs> that Boaz's father... Because we know who his mother is, and we know her significance. I'll come back to that later if those of you don't know. Boaz's father, who was a Jew, was apparently related somehow to Elimelech, or Elimelech's father. So there's a, there's a tribal, maybe even a clan connection between these. That's, uh, that's significant. They tend to marry within their own clans. But there's even more than that. So the kinsman redeemer laws, which we'll talk more about next week, are important laws. They're that anything that could be sold in Israel could be redeemed. So anything that could be sold could be, in fact, were required to be redeemed every seven years or every 50 years. And so they could be redeemed. And that was a kinsman redeemer was that the nearest kin to the person who sold the thing by law could require it. They could go and say, I am now buying that thing back that you bought. <coughs> so if my brother sold land to somebody, if I had the money, I could go to that person and require them to sell the land to me as his brother. It's a pretty amazing picture. and you know, There's very clear laws about it. Anything like this could be done. Or even the nearest, the kinsman redeemer, part of their job as well was, by the way, to punish criminals. So people who committed a crime against my family, that was illegal. My job would be to go and punish that person. There wasn't a police force for that, or or a legal system for that. So that was the, the job of the kinsman redeemer. Is important. But one of the kinsman redeemer laws is called the leverite law. Levir means a brother-in-law, or the or the um, uh, the husband's brother. Here it is in Deuteronomy twenty-five, five through ten. <clears throat> if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Now this seems again odd to us. So that if if a family all lives they, and they would live in these little communities, if you go over there to this day, you can see these communities in the way they were built. All a little bunch of little houses around a central, a central area, and that 's where they would eat and gather and all that kind of stuff, and all the little houses is where the people would live. and if brothers all lived in father 's home, which that whole area would be called father, the father 's house, and so if they lived there together and the one brother's one brother died with no children, so that 's the situation. The wife of the dead man should not be married outside the family to a stranger. Now again, again, I know that sounds strange to us. Like, well, she's not allowed to go just go get another husband wherever she wants. In her mind, she wouldn't want to. She wouldn't want to go somewhere else. This is now her family. And so she's going to want to stay within this family and have her children raised within this family. This is very important. The lineage concept is very important to them. So here's how it plays out. Her husband's Brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. Yes, that's exactly what you think it means. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of the dead brother, that his name shall not be blotted out of Israel. So when the brother marries her, when they have a son, that son is legally the descendant of Of the dead brother. He will be named for the dead brother. He will inherit everything that the dead brother left behind. That's the idea here. We see a few stories of this in the Bible. We see one story where a man seeks to avoid this responsibility and God kills him for avoiding it. So this is a this is is very important to the Jewish people, this idea, and to God. So listen to how this plays out. This is actually almost funny. if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go to the gates, to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. If he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders... Take off his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. This is the gate. We'll talk next week about the significance of city gates. But this is, this is the most important place in the city. This is where everyone's gathered. She's going to take off his sandal and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. So you see... What her mindset is, is that this is perpetuating her dead husband's family. This is a huge insult. You won't do this for your dead brother, is how they understood it. I know it's strange to us. And the name of the house. Remember how we've talked about how people change their names in scripture, that that's a common thing that that in the Hebrew culture, their name would be changed sometimes to fit the narration later, sometimes to fit what they experienced, sometimes it was it was kind of like their most important experience. Sometimes God renames them. Whatever this guy's new name shall be, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. That's his new name, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. That's his new Indian name, right? Is is that? Um, This was meant to protect women from the social disaster of being unmarried and having no heir, which is exactly where Ruth and Naomi are. They're in the midst of that disaster. This was meant to protect them from that. Next week, we're going to look much more in detail at the inheritance aspect of this because it's going to play out um, in chapter 4. Next, what is winnowing? What is threshing? So she says he's going to be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. So here's here's what the concept is. So they they pick they take the whole stalk. So the wheat or the barley, they've got big blades or they gather them up or whatever. They chop them. They get them up and they gather them up and they take them and they they take them to the threshing floor. They lay all this the stalks, the seeds, everything out. Then they have boards with rocks on them and they drag the boards or an animal drags the boards. This is probably what Samson was doing. As they carry these boards around and they crush it all up. Now the seeds are strong enough, they don't get destroyed. But the chaff gets all broken into pieces. Then you find a a nice place with a good breeze and you thresh it. I think we have a video for that. There's Mark Hampton threshing wheat in Israel, in Nazareth. So notice he throws it up in the air and the wind carries it, carries the chaff, which is light, carries the chaff away. And the seeds are going to fall straight back down. That's the idea here, right? So in Israel, especially in high places up on the hilltops and such, what you have is you always have a breeze because the Mediterranean is cold, the desert is hot. So the wind is either moving one direction or the other pretty much all the time. So if you're up on the hilltop, you're throwing it up in the air and the breeze. So what's happening to the pile at your feet is the chaff is being removed from that pile, but the pile is growing with seed, right? What's happening as that piles up? If you're a business owner, what's the equivalent of that? What is the equivalent to that seed starting to pile up? What would Boaz have called, what would have been happening in Boaz's mind as that seed was piling up? What is that to him? That's, that's income, that's profit, that's wealth piling up right there, right? So it's, it's piling up in front of him, piling up in front of him, and the more that's thrown, all that, that's, that's what's going on. By the way, remember this. I'll, I'm sure I'll bring it back. But remember this for in a few weeks when we get to Gideon. It's going to be very important. So that's what's going on. <clears throat> He's going to be at the threshing floor, threshing wheat, or barley in this case. He's going to be threshing out barley. And this is going to be showing his wealth. He's going to be in a good mood if things are going well. So here's what Naomi says. Wash, therefore, <clears throat> and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. So here, Boaz is going to throw a big party. What do we call parties like this? We call them harvest festivals. Every culture throughout all of mankind has had harvest festivals. You are learning right now whether or not you're going to survive the next winter. If you are, you celebrate it. And so you go, wow, we have done well. You're going to throw a big party. This is the height of Boaz's wealth throughout the year, is this moment. And he does really well, by the way. We're going to comment on that here in a second. He has done well this year. And so there's going to be a big party. All those harvesters are going to be there. This is the Christmas bonus time, and, the, and the, all the good things are going on. And he's throwing a party, and there's going to be, there's going to be drink and wine and, and good stuff, and there's going to be great food. And honestly, this is the time of the judges, probably given that these are kind of, kind of roughneck types, there's going to be some, probably some professional women there, and there's going to be all types of stuff like that going on. Maybe under Boaz's leadership, he's there, so maybe in Boaz's threshing room, that's not, that kind of stuff wouldn't be allowed. But there's certainly going to be a party. So they're going to have this big party. Boaz is there. So she says to her, um, wash and anoint yourself. Now immediately, like me, you're going to say, okay, She's going to go try to hook a man. So she needs to look her best, smell her best, be at her best. Certainly there's part of that is what's going on here. Some of this is, hey, get dolled up and go to the threshing floor. No doubt. But there's more to it than that. This is the same language that is used in 2 Samuel 12 when David's son dies. And everyone is shocked because David gets up right after his son dies And washes himself and anoints himself. Because what David is doing is declaring that his period of mourning is over immediately after his son's death. Which is not how it was done. Almost certainly part of what's going on here is that Naomi is telling Ruth. Think about this as a grieving family, grieving parent. Naomi is telling Ruth, you're done grieving my son. It's time to move on. It's time to stop being bitter. It's time to accept God's new provision. It's time to move on. Your mourning period is over. You're no longer mourning my son. You need to make yourself available. And everyone would have known who saw her. They would have known up until now she was mourning. And they would know clearly now her mourning time is over. So part of this is I am now available to a new man in my life. That's part of what's going on here. Listen to the rest of this language. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replies, all that you say, I will do. Now, this language is pretty potent stuff. It's awkwardly similar, in fact, to when Lot's daughters decide. Remember how we talked about how one of the messages and judges is my way or God's way? Lot's daughters, and I'm not going to go into detail in a mixed audience, but Lot's daughters try to figure out a way to solve their own problem their way, not God's way. And that's actually how the Moabite race is invented, is created. It comes from one of Lot's daughters. So this is an uncomfortable language. There's a seductiveness in this language. Um, but that being said, a lot being made of the uncovering of the feet... Um, you, if you read commentaries, there's, there's a lot of different theories on what's going on here. Certainly, the fact that she lays at his feet rather than at his head or at his side is meant to communicate <clears throat> servanthood, no doubt. That's part of, I'm going to make a thesis here in a second, a theory here in a second, that's part of it. But But probably when it says she uncovered his feet, there's nothing extra going on there except that she just uncovered his feet. It's at the hilltop, it's at the threshing floor, it would have been cool at night. So she uncovers his feet, probably for nothing more than the practical reason that it's going to make him wake up and look down at his feet. So sure enough, that's what happens. Um, When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the edge of a heap of grain. Now, it struck me as I was talking about this in the first service, the image that came to my mind was of Scrooge McDuck. I don't, I don't want to connect Boaz to Scrooge McDuck at all, but but Boaz snuggles up with his big old huge pile of grain and goes to sleep. Is essentially what you're dealing with here. So then she comes softly, uncovers his feet and lay down. At midnight the man was startled and turned over. This is one of some of my favorite language. And behold, <laughs> a woman was there. That's such great language. The, the word "behold" is one of my favorites in the whole Bible. Every time it's used, it's like so understated. Behold, there's a woman at my feet. Um, and, but here's I want, this to, I want you to take this moment into your mind. At this moment, Boaz has eaten and drunk. His wealth is set. He's had a party. His, quote, heart is merry. That has to do with the condition. It has to do with the place. It has to do with his wealth. And it has to do with the fact that he has probably had some wine. All of that mixed together makes his heart merry. She is, and he wakes up, and there's a woman laying at his feet. Who, by the way, Naomi sent and said, I'm sending you a woman into this exact situation, and whatever the man says to do, do it. Dads, I want you to imagine sending your daughter into this exact situation and saying, whatever the man says, do it. How much confidence does Naomi have in Boaz? That's amazing, right? Most of the men would be like, yeah, not going to happen. I realize this is now kind of a standard in my mind. Like it, when, the, when the day comes when some guy has come to talk with me about, you know, maybe marrying Ellie or, or Emma, that, that in my mind I'm going to be saying, would I be willing to send her into this exact situation and trust this man to do what was Right? So this is, this is a fascinating little account. And this is the era of the judges. So again, remember that everything that seems extraordinary is extra, extra, extraordinary. Because this is the time of the judges. No one did what was right. They did what was right in their own eyes. And so here, that's, that's what we're dealing with. Behold, there's a woman. Sure enough, he wakes up. He looks down at his feet. Behold, a woman. And he says, who are you? This isn't because he doesn't know who she is. It's because it's dark. It's midnight. I know that's hard for us to wrap our brain around, but 3,000 years ago at night, it was dark. No cell phones to like, who is that down there? Like none of that, no electric lights, nothing. The the brightest light that could be created then was an oil lamp and that does not produce much light. And so if you've ever been, so this this is just, there is a woman at his feet. He doesn't know who it is. Why is there a woman at my feet? Who are you? He says. She says, I am Ruth, your servant. Have I mentioned that she's humble? That's how she starts this conversation. I am Ruth, your servant. It's, it's a, a beautiful, I mean, again, part of this. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, here's what's wild. The language here, and I don't know if this is, this is there on purpose or if this is just happens to be the case or whatever, but this exact language could be stated, translated into English Share your blanket with me because you are a kinsman. If you were to say that line, it would be the same Hebrew words. So it's very likely, I think, it makes sense to me, that Ruth is kind of giving him an escape. That she has, she states this in such a way that she could be just saying, Hey, I'm cold. Could you share some of the covers that you have? Since we're related. Or she could be saying, Redeem me because I am a family member desperately in need of redemption. And will you do that for me? I believe she is offering herself as a servant wife. So this is interesting. A few years ago, probably seven or eight years ago, Ross Strader and I, the pastor at Bethel, we team taught this passage over there. And and as we really researched this, we came to the conclusion that what is happening here is that she is offering herself essentially as a concubine. As a slave wife. All the advantages are with the husband. If he accepts her as a concubine. She is truly a wife, as we talked about in Judges. It's not like she's not really a wife. But she is not an equal to him. She is his servant, legally his servant, even though she's his wife. The servant wife. The slave wife. And all the advantages become his at that point. He gives her whatever he thinks is appropriate she has no voice <clears throat> what's that's this is and, and by the way guys just to continue to build up this idea of boaz this man above reproach in every way at this moment i am convinced that boaz has every legal moral justifiable right to accept her proposal right here and now on the threshing floor to say you know what Deal, We're married. And he could have had a honeymoon night with his new wife right then and there on his threshing floor with his heart merry and his, his bank full and everything positive, and now he's got this concubine wife, his slave wife. Man, it just doesn't get any better than that, right? And, and again, that would have been totally appropriate for him to do that, I believe. See, in our minds, we, we impose our modern thinking on it. Even even the Jewish modern thinking. You think someone's got to step on a glass and say Mazel Tov, right? Because that's what a Jewish wedding looks like. Not 3,000 years ago. So at that point, a, a, what a wedding looked like was a, a, a father bringing his daughter to a man's bedroom and saying, she's now your wife. At that point, they're married. That's, that's what it took. Naomi is clearly the only adult uh, the only parent that Ruth has, she has sent Ruth to the threshing floor to Boaz. She's made this offer of the slave wife. This is a sealed deal if Boaz says yes. That's all that has to happen. Now, I want to comment on this. Is, this is my opinion. This is so beautiful. He says, here's his response to her. May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after younger men whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Let me just tell you, in the Hebrew, this is among the greatest compliments that a man could pay a woman. The language he uses here is off the charts positive. First, he is surprised. He seems surprised that she has chosen him. Him, the wealthy Bethlehem tycoon respected by everyone, is surprised that the widow foreign girl is interested in him. Have I mentioned that he is humble? He, who is doing who a favor here? I love when I'm doing marriage counseling and I get the sense that both of them feel like the other one did them a favor by marrying them. That both of them have that feeling of like, wow, I can't believe she chose me. And she's always like, I can't believe he chose me. There's something really beautiful about that. <coughs> Verses that we talked about this kind of, well, I pulled her out of a bad place or I pulled him out of a bad place thinking that they're both... She's stunned that he's willing to accept her and he is stunned that she wants to be accepted by him. It's, it's really just lovely. And this, the word kindness, you made this last kindness. If any of you who've studied any, any Hebrew at all, you've heard the word hesed. Um, it's a, such a popular word in the Hebrew for us to study because it... It essentially means everything good. If there's a good thing, excellent, praiseworthy, lovely, it's it's translated so many, that's the word kindness here. Steadfast, faithful, lovely, loyal, merciful, devoted, all connected to that word. It's an incredible word. And he starts by describing her as having that trait, chesed. So he's stunned that she's interested. The compliment she pays him. Then the word chesed. Then he uses the word Chayil at the end. For my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And remember that word? That was the exact same word used to describe Boaz. So this is a huge compliment to be paid in the Hebrew language. And he not only tells her Chesed, but Chayil. You are powerful. You have a huge influence. You are worthy, excellent, praiseworthy. The same kind of stuff. This is really over the top. And so I want to I make a slight little um, sales pitch here for changing up our marriages. So often people think that their main job in a marriage is to keep the other person um, realistic. You wouldn't want him to get a big head, right? You wouldn't want her to think too high of herself. You got to kind of keep them in line a little, right? I believe that this is borderline delusional talk. I mean, he's using the best words possible in the Hebrew language to describe this woman. He's crazy about her. He has seen these things in her. He's using the strongest language he knows. I think it would be nice for everyone to have someone who has a delusionally high opinion of them in their life. Wouldn't that be nice? Who's that going to be? Is it going to be your boss? Is it going to be your kids? No. Probably not. Not past seven anyway, right? (laughs) It's certainly not going to be the world. It's not going to be the magazines. It's not going to be the TV shows. Everything communicated to us by all of those different media is that you're not enough. I'm not enough. I'm not whatever enough. Pick it. I promise you there's something. You're not enough in the media world. That if you would just buy their magazine or their fitness equipment or their whatever, then, then maybe you would be enough like the person on the cover is. And all of that is just lies. I have a friend who works for a magazine, and he's the computer editor for the ads. And he, it's, it's laughable to him. He'll send me before and after pictures, meaning before I got my hands on this photo and after I got my hands on this photo. He's like, listen, the picture that you see in the magazine isn't the picture they sent me. They don't even do hair and makeup and stuff like that anymore at the modeling shoots. He does all that. That's all done by him. You want him a little bit heavier for this outfit? I'll make him a little heavier. You want him a little curvier? I'll make him curvier. You want him thinner? I'll make him thinner. There's nothing he can't do with that computer. <coughs> they use old pictures and just change them. We'll just, I'll change her outfit. The, the outfit's been updated, so I'll just change the outfit on her and make it fit her correctly, even though it's totally different. All of this, there's every message in the world is you're not enough, you're not sufficient, you're not good enough. That's what your boss is telling you, that's what your coworkers end up telling you, whether they mean to, even if you have good ones. Wouldn't it be nice if someone had a delusionally high opinion of you? And wouldn't it be cool if that was your spouse? What a cool thing you've got here in this, in this picture. I, I've joked before that, that I should be allowed to decide who the most beautiful woman in the world is to me. Isn't that my call? And so I think I should get to decide that that's my wife and tell her so on a regular basis. That's my prerogative. Don't tell me it's not. I'm allowed to have a delusionally high opinion of my wife and any trait in her. I'm allowed to have that. And so I do. Someone ought to in her life. <clears throat> that's the same thing for, I used to joke about. Um, so if I'm sitting and talking about, uh, um, I don't know, astrophysics, which I know nothing about, and, and, I, and I state my opinion on astrophysics, and then that Japanese guy with the long white hair, you know, he's an astrophysicist, and he's up on National Geographic, and he says something different than what I said. I think it's cool for Ginger to go, how funny that the guy on TV got that wrong. <laughs> now, that's not likely, is it? But someone ought to think I'm right all the time. Someone ought to. And what we've done instead in marriages is we've decided, you're the person who doesn't think that. That's your main job is to keep them from getting... I like Boaz's example better. No extra charge for that. I like Boaz's example. In fact, listen to this. Proverbs 31, 10 through 12. An excellent wife who can find. (coughs) She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her and she will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. That first word, an excellent wife... You guessed it, said. Now, I know Proverbs 31 has been used like a baseball bat against women in the church for years. It's not some list of something that every woman is supposed to have every part of all the time. It is a, it is a hyper-glamorized, delusionally positive picture on purpose. This is the grandeur concept. Every woman should be able to look at this and go, I could grow in that area. I'm pretty good at this. I'd love to grow. That's the idea. It's this it's this. This picture of how we can grow, how women can grow and learn. But here's what you need to know about the Hebrew Bible. The book of Proverbs and the Hebrew Bible, the book of Proverbs ends and Ruth starts. So the last thing you read before reading Ruth is Proverbs 31. That's not an accident. As you continue to look through this. So his words, so positive. Um, so I said it before, Boaz is with the law and justification to accept her offer right here and there. But look at his response in verse 12. This is wild. Remember, all the car, he, holds, he holds all the cards. And his answer is, And it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. This is powerful, again, powerful language. As the Lord, he makes an oath before God, by the way. That's a big deal. Remember how that's how Jephthah's daughter got executed by him, got, got sacrificed by him. It is true, I am a redeemer. Let me, tell you, let me tell you what's happening here. You have offered yourself as a slave wife. Here's what I'm telling you No. Boaz rejects her as a slave wife and instead says, I'm only going to do this above reproach as though you were a Jewish noble woman. He rejects her as a slave wife and will only accept her as a peer wife. As you hear about Christianity or Judaism coming from a misogynist or an anti-women mindset, introduce them to the model of masculinity in the Bible, Boaz, who prefers the peer to the slave. It's, It's And by the way, that's his mindset. Her mindset apparently is she is his servant no matter how he accepts her. That's pretty amazing. Both of them are honored to be chosen by the other. So he's going to send her out while it's still dark so that no one sees her and gets the wrong idea, the wrong impression. Um, Because either he needs to get up the next morning and say, Hey, we were married last night. This is my new um, slave wife, Ruth. Or she needs to not be there in the morning so that people don't get the wrong idea that maybe she was working with a professional woman because remember, that's part of her future if something doesn't happen, probably. So he sends her out. And this is what he says. Um, I'm In fact, um, Bryn, if you'll go ahead and come on up. Bryn's going to model something for us here in a second. Saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. So, don't need to tie it. No need to tie it in the back. There you go. Um, Okay, so two things are going on here. Either he says, um, hey, I'm going to lay. He takes part of her garment and lays it out on the ground and pours in. By the way, six measures is twice as much as he gave her the first time he saw her. This would be 60 pounds of grain that he's about to give her. So either it's like this. She takes part of her garment. She lays it down and he fills it up with grain, ties it up, and ties it on her back very plausible, given that it's 60 pounds, very likely. However, another one of the commentaries talked about what if, let's show the other one, what if it's it's the way that it's done, you know, all the women in the South who go to the garden, they'll carry that like this. So I'm not going to try to pour 60 pounds of grain, in fact, not even close to it, but let's say he starts pouring grain Okay, now naturally, as it's getting full, notice what she's doing with it. Remember I said that Naomi said, I went away full and came back empty. And we talked about what empty and full mean, especially for a Jewish woman. Full means what? Pregnant. With a child. One commentary, a rabbi pointed out, if, that she, wore the, if she wore the grain like this, and the word there that says empty-handed means, also means empty. So when Brynn comes walk, how does she look? She looks pregnant. That this would have been... This, right? <laughs> very good. Yep. Okay, here we go. There you go. Just take it off the top. Or you can do it that way. There you go. Thank you very much. Well done. Okay, so thank you. Yes, you can flog. <laughs> So either he's pouring 60 pounds of grain, which of course would have flowed all back onto the floor and would have made a huge mess and would have been this beautiful picture of opulence, or maybe they took that big wrap thing and they rolled it around to her front so that she still has to carry it like this home. I think all of that potentially works. But she comes home, notice, and there's no doubt that there's a play right here going on. She goes home bearing Boaz's seed. There's no doubt that that double meaning is clear here, that she goes back to Naomi, and Naomi, who is empty and has no hope for another child, that Ruth shows up looking pregnant or at least carrying a whole bunch of Boaz's seed, and that double meaning is clearly there. This is my intention, is to send you back to Naomi. Not Ruth, I'm giving you a bunch of grain. I'm sending you back to Naomi, who is empty And she is going to see that her life is about to get full again. It's such a cool picture of God's provision. It's such a, I just tell you what, this book, you can study it forever and ever. Um, So, but notice this also in the midst of it creates this kind of last tease. The last tease here is that here we are at the end of chapter three, and we don't know for sure if Boaz is going to be the man, there's a nearer redeemer. That makes us nervous. I've always think it's. I think it's funny. This poor guy. We don't ever get his name, by the way. Not through all of chapter four. We never get his name because we would all hate him. He didn't do anything wrong. He's not done anything wrong. But we are so cheering for Boaz that we would all be wearing anti Larry stickers. You know, whatever this guy's name was, we'd be like, no, not him, not him. We want. We have determined ourselves. It needs to be Boaz. We're excited about Boaz being the one with her. Um, all of that kind of stuff. This, but this is Judges. Everything can still fall apart. You're never safe in the book of Judges. In the era of Judges, things can fall apart at the last second. It can seem to be going so well, and then it can still fall apart. You're not supposed to feel safe yet. So um, as you look at this, again, further looking at this language, the book has made, it desperate, made us desperate for this to be Boaz. It, we, we really want it to be him, but we've got to be patient We have to be patient a little bit longer to see for sure, is it going to be Boaz? We have hope, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago. This hope is mirrored. The story of Boaz and Ruth is so mirrored by the advent, by the coming of Jesus Christ. Our hope has begun to be realized, just like Ruth and Naomi's has. We see it. We accept it. We're not fully home yet. But the hope is very real. We find peace in the character of our Redeemer. If, if Jesus is not trustworthy, if God is not someone who makes things new, if he doesn't know how to judge and save and rescue, then we don't have any hope. If he has forgotten us, then we can have no peace. <coughs> she replied, Ruth 3:18, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest. But we'll settle this matter today. A little bit more free marriage advice. When I hear from a wife the phrase, if I don't take care of this, it won't happen. That's, an, that's a bad place for a woman's heart. There is great power in the fact that these two women know we don't have to worry about this. Boaz is taking care of it. That's a powerful thing. In a marriage, not that a woman can't take care of it or isn't going to take care of it or doesn't intend to take care of it or doesn't even want to take care She may want to do all of that kind of stuff. But I will tell you as a marriage therapist, when I hear that line more than a couple of times out of a woman's mouth, if I don't take care of this, it just won't happen. That's, that usually indicates there's a problem. We have a peace that our Redeemer will come and settle this matter at the proper time. He has not forgotten the living or the dead. Let not your heart be troubled, John writes in John 14. Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. We know his plan to that degree. We know what his intention is. We know he's going to follow through with this. We have peace, not in knowing the details of the plan, but in knowing that we have not been forgotten down here. He hasn't forgotten us. He's going to come get us. He remembers us and His promises, and we just have to be patient. And patience leads to joy. So often when we lack joy, it's because of our lack of patience. Isaiah 35, a prophecy about the Messiah, 35.10, And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be on their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. We do have good news of great joy. We have a Redeemer. Just a little longer and the story will be fulfilled. Act 4 for Ruth and Boaz is next week. Unless the final act of the narrative that we're caught up in is also finished and then we won't be here next week. That could happen so easily. At the individual level, there are people who were with us last week who aren't with us this week. Their narrative has reached the conclusion and they get to see the fullness of it. That could happen for all of us between now and next week. Even so, come quickly. Suddenly we will see and know even as we have been known. So we get to celebrate the fact that he has given us hope and peace and the joy even in our waiting. It's an amazing thing. So next week, Ruth chapter 4. Pray with me please. Father, we're so grateful for the power of your word and just how real it is. This, this was millennia ago, and yet it feels, these people feel like people we know. They're right here next to us. They experienced fear and pain and heartbreak and, and shock and love and excitement and hope. God, help us to identify with this and the peace in knowing that you have not forgotten us even when we forget each other. That even if a mother were to forget her children, still you don't forget us. And joy in knowing our heart is full that we can experience the joy in knowing that you haven't forgotten us and you are going to come back and get us. Even when life is hard now, this is temporary and there's a freedom that is to come as we, embrace, as we experience it fully, the last act of the epic play that you are playing out with us. We look forward to that. In the name of your son, amen.